This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. In its nearly 170 years of life, the home at Poplar Grove Plantation has been a place of sorrow and redemption. Situated about 15 miles northeast of Wilmington, off US 17 near Scotts Hill, the stoic Greek Revival Plantation Home sits on what used to be one of the area's most lucrative peanut farms. Simply looking at the plantation's manor home today, you wouldn't be able to tell that deep in its history, the Foy family, which inhabited the house for more than a century, was well acquainted with suffering. For the Foy's, death too often came unexpectedly in the mid-1800s and into the Civil War. There were periods when the women of the house were left to protect the plantation from the war effort and troublemakers, a role that would typically fall to men. And decades of neglect in the 20th century would eventually put the entire property in disrepair. But today, the house has become a well-preserved snapshot of history, in which public tours and events recount its many stories, including a few that can't quite be explained. You see, at least 13 people are said to have died inside the house, although that isn't exactly out of the ordinary for the 19th century. During this time, a house was everything to a family, especially one of wealth means, and social status like the Foy's. It was a gathering place, a workplace, and in some cases, a namesake like the Bellamy Mansion. Traveling doctors making house calls were the custom of the time, so a home was also where your children were born, and where there was a good chance that you would pass away later in life. I tell you this because Poplar Grove like so many historic homes, is a living record of the lives and deaths of the people it sheltered. It reveled in their celebrations and shared in their pain, delivered them into the world, and cradled them through their final moments in it. But Poplar Grove has also been the site of more than a few strange encounters, some of them harmless, others a little more unnerving. These stories intriguingly inform and enrich the history of the plantation, but they also raise an important question. After a century and a half of life and death playing out under its roof, are the living really the only ones roaming its halls? This is Cape Fear Unearthed the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, 
and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. I want to welcome everyone to the first installment in our new miniseries, A Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween. By far, one of the most frequent requests I get from listeners is to do more ghost stories, and I haven't forgotten about it. In a funny way, tales of haunted Wilmington are actually an entry point into the history of this region for a lot of people, be it through ghost walks or books on the supernatural. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll recall that we've already covered several of the area's marquee haunted tales with our episodes on Samuel Jocelyn, the Mako Lights, and Theodosia Burr Austin. But for this new series, I won't just be telling ghost stories. Frankly, when it comes to ghost stories, I believe people have a tendency to toss aside the history in favor of the sensational. And let's be clear, every ghost story is rooted in history. These tales don't just materialize out of thin air like some of their subjects. Almost all were already part of the fabric of this region, only to be ascribed another layer of intrigue steeped in legend. So as we embark on a month of episodes looking at the twisted, supernatural, and haunted tales of the Cape Fear, I want you to know that we won't be losing sight of the history. I've selected these stories because they have important ties to the region and are incredible bits of history in their own right, with the added bonus of something that just might send chills down your spine. For this new series, we won't have any guests. It's just going to be me telling you these stories campfire style. So without further ado, pull up a log and settle in for the first installment of our Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween series as we investigate the fascinating Foy family and the peculiar legacy and haunted happenings at Poplar Grove Plantation. The first family to stake a claim on the land that would become Poplar Grove Plantation was actually the founding family of the Lower Cape Fear region. The land's first owner was James Moore, the brother of Morris Moore, the founder of the area's first permanent settlement at Brunswick Town. In 1767, the land was sold to an equally notable figure in the area, Cornelius Harnett, the Revolutionary War patriot known as the Samuel Adams of North Carolina for his leadership in the Stamp Act Rebellion at Brunswick Town in 1766 and his service as a North Carolina representative in the Continental Congress. He would die in Wilmington in 1781 after being captured by the British and held under harsh conditions as a prisoner in a roofless blockhouse. During his time as one of the area's most wanted rebels, Harnett owned a legendary plantation just north of downtown Wilmington, first known as Maynard, and later renamed Hilton Park. 
but he also operated a second home on the land he purchased from Moore, farther north in New Hanover County, off what was the old Newburn Road that connected Wilmington to the state's capital. For Harnett, there was undoubtedly an attraction to the land. The property stretched from the road to the sound, offering plenty of access to the shoreline. He may have even saw it as a bit of an escape from the clutches of the political rumblings in Wilmington. After all, traveling from this property to Market Street downtown would have taken upwards of six hours by carriage or mule. But he especially loved the property for its sea of poplar trees. In fact, it's believed that Harnett was the first person to refer to the area as Poplar Grove. Sadly, today, only one poplar tree stands on the site. After his death, his widow Mary moved to New York to be with family and sold off their property in Wilmington, including the home among the poplars. Not much is known about this first house on the land, other than it likely stood closer to Topsail Sound along Futch Creek. The deed was first signed over to a Scottish gentleman named Francis Clayton, but on May 12, 1795, its 628 acres, including the manor home and a small island off the Sound, were purchased by James Foy, Jr. That island would be called Foy Island for a time, but today we know it as Figure 8 Island. The Foy family originated in France, but fled to America to escape religious persecution, settling in Maryland in 1673. By 1749, James Foy Sr. had migrated to Onslow County, North Carolina, and would go on to fight in the Revolutionary War, even defending the Cape Fear from British invasion at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge in what is now Pender County in February 1776. If you can't already tell, this property has passed through the hands of some serious heavyweights in the founding of this region and even this country. But it's the Foy family that would come to be its defining residence. James Foy Jr. and his wife Henrietta would begin to build out a large family and a prosperous business on the plantation, which initially harvested multiple crops such as corn, field peas, sweet potatoes, and beans. But by the 1820s, peanuts were rapidly becoming the cash crop, and Joseph Mumford Foy, the fifth of James and Henrietta's six children, had inherited the property. Poplar Grove had grown into a self-sustaining plantation, meaning everything that was needed to function was handled on site. Of course, this was work done mainly by slaves, 32 of which Joseph Mumford owned by 1850. A year before that, the house built by Harnett nearly a century earlier burned to the ground as the result of a kitchen fire, suddenly leaving Poplar Grove and its residents at somewhat of a crossroads. Joseph Mumford wasted no time building a new home. Only this time, 
he built it closer to the new Wilmington Topsail Sound plank road, which is today U.S. 17. Slaves would have certainly been a part of the construction of the house, perhaps even William Benjamin Gould, a former slave we've highlighted on the show before, who worked as a plaster on the Bellamy Mansion and later escaped Wilmington in 1862 to join the Union Navy and fight for his freedom. Similarities in the architecture of both Bellamy Mansion and the Poplar Grove home have led some to believe that Gould actually learned the plaster trade as an apprentice while working on the Foy House, which is a decade older than the downtown Wilmington Mansion. Gould's owner, Nicholas Nixon, operated a plantation next door to the Foy's and routinely hired him out for work. So it's certainly possible that Gould crossed paths with the Foy's. Construction on the new house, designed by Joseph Mumford himself, would be completed by 1853, signaling a new era for the family. Now, before we go any further, I want to note that the strange experiences reported inside the Poplar Grove Plantation home since it opened to the public in 1980 are predominantly tied to three people who lived in the house during a 70-year period between 1853 and 1923, when the third person is believed to have died in the house. Perhaps the most visible spirit is believed to be that of Mary Ann Simmons Foy, who married Joseph Mumford in 1839 when she was 17 and he was 23. She bore him six children. Unlike the well-established home she married into, this new manner of black walnut staircases, heart pine floors, and 12 fireplaces, one in each room, was hers to make her own. Her family would be the first generation to breathe life into it. So it's not surprising that it's Mary Ann who's most often seen, or felt, interacting with the guests in her home today. In 1861, just 11 days shy of the first shots of the Civil War at Fort Sumter, Joseph Mumford died after battling an illness leaving his wife the sole guardian of six children, 59 slaves, and a bustling plantation that required leadership and oversight to function, all as the country is plunged into war. Marianne did what she had to, immediately beginning to groom her oldest son, David, to take up the mantle as leader, as his father had made clear in his will. But as war folded in around the Foy family, Mary Ann had to plead with David to resist the temptation to join the Confederate Army and stay focused on his duty to the plantation and his family. Joining the Confederate cause would have actually been a major deviation for the Foy family, which identified, albeit discreetly, as Unionist. North Carolina was actually home to a lot of Unionists. But Joseph Mumford specifically had been firm in his belief that since his grandfather fought to create the Union 
in the American Revolution, he had no interest in supporting the secession of states looking to rip it apart, even if he was a slaveholder. On October 20th, 1860, Joseph sent a letter to David expressing his fears that Abraham Lincoln's election would lead to the secession of southern states. He ended the note by signing his motto, Union Forever. Despite that legacy, David defied his father's beliefs, and in March 1862, enlisted as a private in the Confederacy's 41st North Carolina Regiment, a company of New Hanover County boys that called themselves the Rebel Rangers. But he would never step foot on the front lines, or even wield a weapon in battle. He trained for a few months near Wilmington, but contracted typhus and died in the back parlor of his family's home on June 12, 1862. He was 21. Marianne was devastated. Not only had she lost her husband, she'd now lost her eldest son, the only one of her children old enough to assume control of the plantation. His namesake, her brother David, would also be killed at the Battle of Petersburg at the close of the war. This was all on top of reports that the birth of her last child had left Mary Ann paralyzed to some degree. Even though it's likely she still shared her husband's allegiance to the Union, Mary Ann desperately wrote to the Confederate President Jefferson Davis with a plea to exempt her second son, Joseph Thompson Foy, from the draft so he could run the plantation. She claimed he was just a small, timid boy of 17 who had no business holding a gun, let alone the knowledge of how to use it. He would be better used at Poplar Grove, where work had continued despite the bloodshed of war consuming the fractured country. Her request was granted, but by then the fighting was all but over. Poplar Grove had spent the war in a unique position, almost with a foot in two worlds. To its south sat Wilmington, an important Confederate stronghold throughout the war, and to its north was Newburn, a Union-held camp that had fallen early in the war. After Wilmington was seized by the Union in February 1865, the entire Confederate cause began to crumble. Mary Ann had successfully pulled her family and business through the nightmare of war, and now she was happy to be done with it. She signed an oath of allegiance to the Union on June 19, 1865, and finally looked to the future. The first time she had had a moment to consider her post-war life as a widow. More than two-thirds of the slaves at Poplar Grove Plantation remained at the home after the war. Freed men and women now working as tenants and living out of the old slave cabins. Only one of those tenant houses still stands on the property today. Mary Ann lived a quieter life after the war, passing the leadership role over to J.T., who assumed daily control of the plantation. In 
She died on Christmas Eve 1875 in her upstairs winter bedroom. She was 54. I wanted to tell you the story of the Poplar Grove home's first generation because it informs the experiences had by guests today who feel they've interacted with Marianne and David in the house. Marianne is thought to be the little lady seen keeping a close eye on visitors. When the home was being painted a few years ago, several contractors asked staff who the little lady was that kept peeking out of the window in the upstairs bedroom, Marianne's bedroom. Empaths, individuals who are highly sensitive to the emotions of people and spirits, have toured the house and on multiple occasions reported seeing a small woman walking very closely behind guests, sometimes stroking their hair. There's also at least one case of someone's hair being pulled in Mary Ann's room. Although these encounters with what is thought to be Mary Ann have been fairly gentle, besides that hair-pulling incident, she does still seem to exert a great influence over the home. One guest reported leaning in for a closer look at some of the Foy family clothes on display in the children's room and feeling herself pulled back by something she couldn't see, as if she was getting too close to the artifacts. You would also be wise to not misbehave in Marianne's home. One paranormal investigation tour featured some roughhousing guests, and at the end, a woman identifying herself as an empath pulled the guide aside and said the little old lady standing in the hallway was very upset about the way the guests were conducting themselves. As sort of a spiritual punishment, she told all the ghosts to be quiet and not interact with that group. Another spirit believed to be active in the house is David, although he's not as courteous as his mother. His most significant encounter involves a current staff member who feels as though she was stalked by the ill-fated young man to the point that she considered quitting her job and never returning to Poplar Grove. She said she first encountered him while giving a tour and stopping in the front office, where men of the house would have spent many mornings basking in the first rays of sunlight. Based on their own experiences in the house and those shared with them by guests, Poplar Grove staff admit that if there's anything negative in the house, it originates in that office. The smell of cigar smoke and a burning fireplace often waft from the room, even on sweltering days, when a fireplace is the last thing staff wants greeting guests. The room has been described by some as strangely and inexplicably intimidating, with a few male guests even refusing to enter it because of a negative presence they immediately felt in the doorway. Two guests have also reported being scratched on the same shoulder in that room on separate occasions. When renovations were being done in recent years, staff said unexplained activity ramped up throughout the house, but especially in the office. 
One report said a staffer was in the gift shop in the basement and heard heavy boots pacing in the office above them, even though no one was in the house, which locks from the inside. In this office is where the younger female staffer said she first felt like she was being poked exactly at the moment that she began her honest discussion of the plantation's legacy of slavery. A guest on that exact tour, an African-American man who was standing next to the guide, said he felt his ear was flicked almost simultaneously, an unnerving sensation that almost caused him to abandon the rest of the tour. This guide said that she felt like she was going crazy, but she still wanted to be logical about this. That was until she started having dreams. For nearly two weeks after being introduced to the story of David, she remembers dreaming about his name, only to be jolted awake every night and feel as though a shadow hung over her bed. She started having trouble sleeping, and then she stopped sleeping at all. Sleep-deprived and refusing to eat, some of her co-workers became concerned about her health. So she decided to confront David, as best as she could, considering the 150 years between them. She located his grave at Oakdale Cemetery in Wilmington and decided to pay him a visit. Through tears, she said she knelt on the ground, hid his grave, and pleaded with him to tell her what he wanted or to leave her alone. If this does not stop, she told his grave, you will never see me at Poplar Grove ever again. After that, she said she hasn't had a problem with David, even though she feels that he's still around, especially when she's alone in the house. The only known picture of David is a faded, distorted, almost creepy portrait of a sad, forlorn little boy with tragedy written all over his face. A picture that was taken even before his short life came to an end. The final spirit that's been mentioned repeatedly over the years is that of Aunt Nora, the wife of J.T. Foy. David's brother. Described as a spitfire and a jokester, Nora was an appropriate successor to Marianne as the protector of the house, where she lived alongside her husband until his death in 1918. But Nora herself is also a tragic figure. Her mother died giving birth to her, and the four children she carried all died within days of their birth, almost certainly in the house. All of them have been given grave markers in front of the couple's headstone at Oakdale Cemetery. One fascinating aspect of the Foy family's history was their role as the postmasters for the dozen or so homes nearby. Already well known for their peanut plantation, the Foy's role as postmasters put them in a unique position to know everyone's business. It was probably pretty difficult to keep secrets from the Foy's. 
Nora took over as postmistress in 1886, a role that allowed her to become the area's resident gossip. Not unlike her mother-in-law, Nora was a petite woman who was dealing in important correspondence and even cash transactions through the mail. So to ensure that no one took advantage of her, the government issued her a 22 caliber single-shot pistol with a four-foot range. In other words, don't cross Aunt Nora. That gun is on display at the house today. Nora died in 1923 in the back parlor where David also passed, and she likely would have given birth to her children. She had been confined to the room as she became invalid in her final days. She's believed to patrol the house like Marianne, ensuring everyone is respectful of her family's property. One story tells of three women, one of them possibly Nora, standing on the steps, watching and observing as a tour ascended through the house. After her death, she deeded the home to her adopted nephew, Robert Lee Foy Sr. His son, Robert Lee Jr., would be the last resident of the home, moving out in the 1950s. For the next two decades, the once lively manor would act as elaborate storage space for the Foy family, which built brick cottages farther back on the property to be closer to the sound. The house was so vacant that chickens were kept on the first floor. When it was sold in 1971, the house was starving for maintenance. Under its new owners, it was rehabilitated, restored to its former glory, and turned into a museum, honoring the region's history and the stories of the Foy family. Today, it's on the National Registry of Historic Sites. A few other encounters in the house don't have the benefit of historical context to tie them specifically to a person like Marianne, David, or Nora. Children have been heard or felt running from their room on the top floor to a bedroom across the hall. Just this year, a newly hired landscaper was mowing the front yard early in the morning when he saw an African-American woman emerge from under the stairs of the home on two separate occasions. During its time as a plantation, slaves would have accessed the house through entrances under the stairs. He was so convinced of what he saw, he stopped mowing and attempted to approach the woman, thinking she worked there. But she disappeared back under the steps before he could reach her. After sharing his encounters with management, only to be told that no one of that description worked on site, he was so freaked out that he quit. Today, the staff at Poplar Grove actually engage with this haunted history offering paranormal tours throughout the month of October for those brave enough to poke around the house at night. Executive Director Carolyn Lewis and Tourism Director Felicia Green have both experienced things they can't explain in the house. And both are of the mind that it's important to share the good, the bad, and the unknown 
when educating the public about historic homes like Poplar Grove. I toured the plantation in researching this episode, but I didn't have any first-hand encounters. Still, that doesn't invalidate the decades of stories that have crafted a hair-raising legacy for this historic site. After JT and Nora's generation, Lewis and Green told me the family refused to talk about any paranormal experiences they had in the house. It just wasn't acceptable to talk about ghosts. But for those who share the story of Poplar Grove today, they don't sand down the edges of history for any guests. Lewis and Green said they can't explain what's been experienced in the house over the years, but they have found a sort of comfort in a belief held by the Gullah Geechee, the enslaved population on plantations in coastal southern communities like Poplar Grove, who believed that when a person died, their body was buried in the ground, their soul ascended to heaven, and their spirit remained behind. Are these the spirits of the Foy family and their workers, still tending to the home a century and a half later? Whether you believe the stories of ghosts and spirits lingering at the manor house, the staff at Poplar Grove recognize that the activities of the present and the remnants of the past must find a way to cohabitate. So, whoever opens up the house each morning always greets the unseen inhabitants with updates of what's on tap for the day. It's about keeping the peace with a cordial daily routine shared between the living and anything else that may still reside at Poplar Grove Plantation. That's it for the first episode of A Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween. Thank you so much for joining me. As we close out the episode... I would encourage everyone to go visit Poplar Grove Plantation, which is open to the public Monday through Saturday and offers daily tours of the grounds and the manor house. Through the month of October, they're also hosting special paranormal tours in case you want to do some investigating on your own. I'd also like to send a special thank you to Carolyn Lewis and Felicia Green, who gave me a truly fascinating tour of the house while I was researching this episode. I couldn't have done it without their insight. To learn more about Poplar Grove and get a schedule of its tours and events, visit poplargrove.org. We'll be back next Thursday with a new tale from our Halloween history book. But until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. Or you can email me your thoughts directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and this week, I'm going to be sharing a lot of pictures of Poplar Grove Plantation through the years, including portraits of Marianne, David, and Nora Foy. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, 
that goes out every Thursday. In it, I include links to our new episodes and any supplemental pictures and videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Kate Fear Unearth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Kate Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News Today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will make sure more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what spooky things you might unearth.